I think this podcast has a tendency to focus on what's going wrong in the development space. But equally important is showing those that are sincerely trying and in some ways, slowly getting it right. And so in that vein, it's a real honor to bring to you my discussion with Ruth Levine, the CEO of ID Insight, a research and advisory organization that works with global development leaders to improve their social impact. As an organization with six offices spread across five regions in Africa and Asia, I think Ruth is keenly aware of the complexities of cultural differences and sensitivities and how they impact meaningful collaboration. ID Insights and her efforts to really honestly discuss this and structurally address this stood out to me. And that's why I was really keen to hold this conversation with her. In a space with plenty of talk and little action, I think there's a lot we can learn from a leadership which buys into the challenges and is intentional in tackling the differences to get the culture and setup that many others only profess to care about. So in this episode, we take on some of the challenges she and ID Insight have faced to hiring talent across the globe, building trust with communities, and then her concerns around the all too superficial shift to localization and some of the consequences that might have. These are Ruth's opinions, not ID Insights. And in the show notes, you'll find a link to her brilliant newsletter, which I highly recommend. Enjoy. so much Ruth for making the time to have this conversation a real pleasure to do it in person yeah it's wonderful to meet you I'm a huge fan of the development dilemma well that's very kind and I think one of the things I would love to speak to you about and what I really found uh, inspiring in ways is having spoken off record to a few of your colleagues in your organization across the world one in India one in the Kenya office what comes out is despite the challenges that we speak about a lot on this podcast, there is a lot of warmth and it sounds as if the organization and the culture you guys have is one that does promote and does cherish uh, some of the differences. And I'm curious what you found to be some of the things you've put in place or, or worked upon to create that and also some of the challenges you continue to face. Well, I'm glad to hear that about ID Insight. It's certainly the way I feel, and it's what our you know team surveys tell us and various forms of feedback that we're not by any means perfect at all. But I think that all team members feel a sense of safety, of that they're in a welcoming and inclusive environment, and that we're working on that the challenges that we still have and will always be in that that learning mode. I think we benefit a lot from the fact that 10 years ago when the organization was founded, there were a very strong, deeply felt set of values that were articulated for the organization. And in contrast to many organizations that I've seen, these are values that they're just repeated almost daily and really animate a lot of our work. So their values around prioritizing the social impact of our work, their values around having a kind of system orientation, being able to see our work that is a very in the weeds work on data and evidence, monitoring systems, evaluation, quite technical work. 
seeing that within a broader kind of social and economic context. And their values around what we refer to as ownership. And that means, among other things, that each and every team member really has a role in shaping the organization, both a kind of opportunity and a responsibility to make us better every single day. So even though that sounds like something many different organizations might say, I think we really, from the beginning, from way before I joined, there that's been like kind of habit of mind and practice in the organization. So ID Insight is spread over how many companies? <laughs> well, we have offices in India. It's our single largest offices in Delhi with more than 100 team members. And then we have offices in Rabat, Dakar, Lusaka, Nairobi, and Manila. Okay, as well as in the U.S.? And, well, we don't actually have any office in the U.S. We're all remote in the in the U.S. I see. And so with that, and I think around 200 or more employees, when you say kind of each employee plays a part in, in shaping the culture in the organization, yeah. on a daily basis, what might that look like? What might be the, you know, an example of this? Mm, great question. So on a daily basis, I would say in each of the offices, and I forgot to say Lilongwe, we, we also have a country office in Lilongwe. So let me just give you an example from a trip that I just had to our India office. And I was speaking with the team there, and they were expressing quite a bit of concern, I would say, about the fact that many of our recent hires have come from one university in India, Ashoka University. Excellent, excellent university. And they were talking about how, you know, it's partly because of the strong education there and partly because of the strong social networks that sort of bring people into the organization. And so they were giving me and others in leadership a lot of ideas about how we could recruit from other universities, from public universities outside of Delhi. And they were offering not just ideas, but actually offering volunteering to take actions themselves to reach out to students in other and potential recruits in other places. So I think that's one example. Another very nerdy example is that one of the kinds of work we do on a regular basis is design and conduct household surveys. And so a team got together at ID Insight, recognizing that we could benefit from it and put together a kind of questionnaire bank so that whenever we start a new survey, we have like a repository of our own work to draw on. You'd think we might have had this before, but we didn't. So they saw a need and put that together. Okay. So that's another example of you know, the, the kind of energy that people have for contributing to the organization's work, even while they're busy doing their own projects. Okay. And I think one thing... I mean, from your previous work at the Hewlett Foundation, but also ID Insight has been this empowerment of teams in the regions. And so shifting away from kind of an aid mentality to that. And I, I'm curious, I think you mentioned 80% of staff are based in the region, which are, come from the regions in which they serve? Right. So overall, we have people at ID Insight team members from about 25 different countries. We work in... As I talked about, we work in 
East Africa, West Africa, North Africa, India, and the Philippines. And across those offices, on average, about a little bit more than 80% come from the countries and regions in which we work. Okay. And the other side of that, so diversity, one speaks of in that way. The other element is, is within, is positions within an organization. So I'm curious at the level of 80%, but in terms of the ones that might lead each region, yeah. is there similarly a, a diversity there? There is. In India, the entire, is this right? The, the entire leadership, the senior leadership with maybe one exception, is Indian. I won't go through the whole list, but in most of the offices, the leaders are from the countries in which we work. So that's true in Zambia. It's true in Kenya. It is true in Lilongwe. And and then we have some leadership transitions going on, and I'm hopeful that we will have even more senior leaders from the countries in which we work. And so from that, when you mentioned transitions, it sounds like it's not a passive thing. It's a deliberate attempt. Yes, yes, for sure. I think there was a recognition even before I joined that that's the direction we should be moving in over time as we grow, that we should be much more deeply embedded in the policy and research communities in which we work. And a key part of that is recruiting and creating the right home, professional home for senior leaders in the region. One of the things we had to do to get there was adjust our compensation structure. So ID Insight had always, fortunately, had a compensation practice that didn't differentiate between expats, and I'm using inverted commas here, okay, foreigners. Which is almost the accepted practice. If we look at organizations, they tend to have a distinction here between expat salaries. Right and what they would call local salaries. Right. So we did not have that. Thank goodness. But what we did have was a compensation structure at the senior levels that was basically calibrated toward people who were international workers, international professionals, who were, I think interested in having a kind of field experience for a limited part of their professional lives. It doesn't characterize everybody, but that was what the salary structure was kind of set at. And so what that meant was that in Nairobi, in Lusaka, and in Dakar, it was pretty significantly below market for senior African talent. The labor market is quite confusing in this region, as you may as you may know. It is hard to characterize, but senior African talent with a technical background, those are relatively well remunerated individuals. And so we actually had to recalibrate our senior leadership compensation structure so that we could be competitive in the market. And once we did that, we are now reasonably competitive in the market, and it's been very, very helpful. What I like about that is I know organizations that have looked at that similar fact that there's a scale, whether some the market for that type of skill can be very, very competitive. And they have instead responded with, well, we will actually 
bring in the person from abroad because it's cheaper, um, right? As odd as it may sound, it's cheaper for us. And so I like for you as an organization because it's an increase in cost, certainly an increase in quality, but what was the justification you had to make? Or was it self-evident this was important? I guess I saw it as self-evident both for the inherent rightness of it and also kind of instrumentally, if you will, because the work that we do requires requires deep contextual knowledge. It requires being able to be in conversation with the policy and research communities in which in the countries in which we work. And so honestly, to do that very well, it's most likely going to require talent from the region. And so there was an impact case to be made. And I think there was a justice case to be made, but fortunately they aligned and weren't in tension. Okay, that's great to hear. I, I really like that. This is really great. And I'm curious, as you're kind of going ahead with this and pushing continuously on this journey of, of trying to improve in this direction, where have you found it challenging to balance differing interests? Yeah. Well, I discover new challenges every day, but a, a few that come to mind are, one is that we get our resources, our projects are funded by and large by U.S. and European-based funders, who themselves, I think, are motivated by lots of great ambitions around development outcomes. But they also hold a lot of power, and they have, you know, certain requirements that are very, very familiar to people in the development world. They require a certain kind of proposal, reports articulated in a very particular way, accounts kept in a very particular way, etc. And so we have to be responsive as an organization to those requirements and build those relationships. And I do find that sometimes, less and less over time, but sometimes that is in tension with the kind of delegation, the kind of full decentralization that we're aiming for over time. So that is one of the challenges, sort of being an intermediary between funders and the teams in country. And then I think another challenge is that, as I said, we, we're an organization coming from 25 different cultural backgrounds, all bringing our own assumptions about what work looks like, what quality looks like, what communication looks like, what feedback feels and looks like, etc. And so kind of negotiating that, trying to recognize, trying to realize the great positive potential of having a diverse team while <laughs> dealing with the the frictions and misunderstandings that come with, with that diversity. I read a book called The Culture Map and really learned a lot from that about how diverse the kind of starting assumptions about work life are, even from between the Netherlands and the UK, between the UK and India, be certainly between the US and Kenya. Yeah, that's I, exactly. That book by Aaron Meyer is a really good one. And 
with that, I'd love to get a sense of those frictions you mentioned and how you as the leader of uh, ID Insight have looked to, and perhaps it's with kind of people you work directly in contact with frequently who lead the regions, how you've had to kind of manage and think about developing the relationships for whom there is a cultural difference. Yeah. Well, I should talk to them. Still always a work in progress. I think what I've had to really tune into and keep reminding myself of are different communication styles and how much kind of I have to invite, very actively, actively invite my colleagues who are leading the regional teams to contribute their ideas to tell me when they think I'm making a decision that's wrong for them, wrong for their team, wrong for the organization. I I think there are so many ingrained assumptions and habits around not challenging authority that anybody in a position of authority has to like go just be super intentional about creating space and and creating that invitation. I also try to be very explicit with all team members from from anywhere about what decisions are theirs to make and even if those decisions go the end up with the wrong outcomes that I won't second guess them, like they're taking on that risk and will be support. And then which decisions require a consultation and which are really mine in the end to make. And sometimes that's helpful too. Everybody needs a little bit of, you know, cover in an organization. Sometimes I need that from my board. And so I think it's, there's just a lot of value in being very explicit about what the space is for you to make a decision. What's the space for me to make a decision with your input. Yeah, and you've seen that over time build perhaps the confidence for those who initially weren't to start to share in those spaces? Yeah, I think so. And I know that there have been a few instances where we've made organizational changes very much because of the requests and input that's come from the leadership in the countries in which we we work. I mean, we've made other compensation increases for more junior staff for sure because we got kind of signals from leaders in Kenya and Senegal in particular that we were not really offering what we should to get the kind of talent we're looking for. We've restructured some of our recruiting. We've created the capacity in in the Africa region to do more local recruiting. We didn't have that before. So there are a bunch of changes we introduced to compensatory time, like a bunch of changes that really came about because of suggestions from the leaders in the, in the Africa region. And I think that that feedback, like if you speak up and ask for something, if you speak up and say, we're doing something that we could do better and you get a response I think that builds trust too yeah I think that that shows the trust in the commitment you've stated beyond the organizational values that one can state that's where you show it and that comes out quite clearly right right and 
maybe the second portion I'd love to get on is trust externally in your commitment to the work you're doing with clients, but to the people who they hope to serve. And I'm curious with the role data plays, and it's very central, but I'd love to get your take on on what are the ways to create such data and, and your perspective. Yeah, well, I think you work on this too, so I uh, can, can contribute your thoughts to this part of the conversation. I think one useful framework to think about what creates trust is that there are kind of three elements to it. So one is that the other party who whom you want to trust you sees you as competent and capable, like you can do what you're saying you're going to do. Second is that you're honest and are acting with high integrity so that you'll be, yeah, you'll be transparent and the third is maybe the hardest to to observe, but maybe also the most important, which is that you have the best interests at heart of the party who you're trying to build a relationship of trust with. So those three elements, I think, are reflected. Certainly the first and the second, I think there's a lot of kind of elements of work with data and evidence that comes into it. Are you capable of doing the work that you say you're going to do? That's central to what ID Insight establishes with our clients, and we rarely fail. Second is is the honesty and transparency. And the way we work is in a client services model. And so we are very open with our clients about the findings from evaluation, the analytic work we do. We also promise them that we won't share publicly unless they give us permission to do so. So that sort of bleeds into or, or you know, merges into that we have the best interests of our clients at, at heart, that we won't do anything to undermine their reputation or because our goal is to provide them with information and analytic resources that help them make the best decisions. And sometimes that is kind of undermined if they think we're going to go out as, for example, sometimes when they work with academics, the academics must publish. And and so I think sometimes there's a higher degree of comfort working working with us. I think we're making some progress, but it's not as far along as we hope it will be soon in helping the organizations we work with get feedback from the communities that they work with and establish those kinds of relationships of trust and solid feedback loops. We've just started the something called the Dignity Initiative with Tom Wayne, who's based in Kenya, working with organizations to essentially do just that, get feedback from communities that are served by development programs to find out, are they experiencing the interactions as respectful? Do they feel that their intrinsic dignity is being respected in the development programs? It makes a lot of sense. I think one thing I, I heard you say, which I like the framing of, was this notion of kind of requiring evidence to take it to be impactful has to be used. And use requires trust, trust requires benevolence. And benevolence requires co-creation. And uh, <laughs> I thought that was a very nice framing of breaking it down, of why it's so crucial. And, and so co-creation means both with your clients, but as you say, 
ultimately clients, the NGOs, whoever are the implementers of the program need to be co-creating with whom they're trying to serve. And that's a very crucial component. And when you, when you think of it as a crucial component, is it to the quality of the data or also to the way such data can then be used? And maybe that's a false dichotomy. Hmm, say more about this. So I, I wonder, I think there's a, I think there's two ways to look at, and here I'm, I'm really just paraphrasing Mark Chesen and his work of how does one think of a program and the design to impact, to help people. And the way in which often a lot of better data has been couched in and why it's important to co-create or create partnerships or participatory inclusion is around that gets better data and better insights. And I think that's an important aspect, but there's a second one about a processional commitment to the approach one has to dignity and to the other person. And I think that is more about the importance of that approach as inherent to how we approach problems and solve them in in a co-creative manner, as opposed to it's kind of more instrumental. I guess... I think that our most successful work, which is directly with government agencies and with NGOs, is when we're able to work with the individuals who are making consequential decisions about the design of a program, about who the beneficiary communities will be, how best to allocate resources. When we work directly with them, try to understand the operational and political and financial constraints that they're operating under and design our work around that. So that's the level that we work at. I think that we increasingly have the opportunity to help those entities, the agencies and uh, government agencies and the NGOs themselves better understand the communities that they're trying to, to serve. I don't know that the kind of standard approaches that we typically use, which tend to be fairly conventional types of data collection, go as far as we need to go. That's part of the reason we're investing in the dignity work. We're also starting to do some work with exploring ways in which we can support social movements, use evidence, and and that will require more community-engaged efforts. So we're, it's like yeah. the frontier of what we're doing. I can't claim that we're the kind of pioneers in that area. And it's not your yeah. direct work. It's that's, not our direct work. Exactly beyond. right. So, yeah. When you mentioned around kind of, if you look at healthcare and now the introduction of a bit more of patient review within mm-hmm. that, I think that's a really interesting example where you embed at the level of almost decision-making, but at least a very high level of informing decisions, the voice of those who you've claimed you're trying to serve. Yeah. And I think there's there really is some extremely important work that's been done by, I would say, mostly by kind of membership organizations, like organizations of informal workers, a lot of quasi-trade union, disability rights organizations, and other organizations that really are not just seeking to represent people who are being failed by the system, but organizations that are actually comprised of people who are being failed by the system, and, and this is a means of giving them collective voice. 
So again, that's a little outside our ID Insights typical work, but I think that is where some of the most exciting kind of thinking about the social construction of data is being done. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's so necessary because I think one of the concerns was the ways in which behind expertise, one can couch a lot of power and maintain it. So where expertise is held in analytics and insight and the rest, it's very easy to maintain. You need HQ and you need the rest to be abroad, if not even still about people who have not had lived experience. But as soon as you recognize that engagement, not only that knowledge and ability, but also the crucial aspect of empowering the people who are part of those communities as core to the impact you want to achieve. One thing to say is that several years ago, before I joined ID Insight, there was a project called Measuring People's Preferences, which was funded by GiveWell, very much a central player in the effective altruism community. And the idea of it was to essentially test some assumptions about the, quote, moral weights that were applied to different kinds of outcomes and projects, really trying to elicit from members of communities like the ones that GiveWell tries to serve through its funding, trying to elicit, what do you actually care about? Would you rather have cash in your pocket or would you rather have a functional health system, for example? And so I think that that's we're starting to extend that work as well under the context of the Dignity Initiative. And so I think that there are ways to really apply a systematic approach to, as I said, kind of eliciting the preferences of the people you're trying to reach. This is a hard question. So with ID Insight, with similarly the Center for Global Development, what there is there is an expertise and a concentration of expertise in knowledge and analytics and insight. And please frame it as you see it. I wonder how the recognition of and devolution of knowledge and power mm. to more community-based institutions. I wonder how that poses a risk, actually, to entities like that, who at the moment serve as the foremost expertise. I once read, so I don't know if this is true or not, but I once read that the concept of expertise arose during the period when there was a lot of concern about the about nuclear energy. It's probably worth checking before it goes on the air. But when there was a lot of a sort of community around places where nuclear power plants were being built, there was sort of community opposition. And the Department of Energy decided to in the U.S. decided to label some people as experts on nuclear energy and able to provide input into policies. And they were the only people who were permitted to provide input into policies. So again, I'll try to check the reference for you. And this was sometime in the 60s. So that got me thinking, like, what? yeah, what is the power that people hold simply because they are labeled as experts in a certain domain. And another thing that sort of comes into my thinking about this is that I once went to a 
talked by somebody who's an expert herself in human-centered design, and she said, each person is an expert about themselves. And so I cannot be an expert about you. You are the expert about you. So I'm not sure exactly where this goes. So let me go back to your question okay. about what, about the power held by organizations that basically define their space as being some kind of expertise around technical issues. I guess it's like really, really a tough, <laughs> it's a tough it question. Is. It's a very good question. It's hard to get out of the aquarium you swim in. It really is. And, you know, I think that you're right that organizations like ID Insight in particular, where basically the core thing that we have to offer is a mastery of highly technical methods. It is hard to kind of democratize Absolutely. that idea of expertise, but I think we can at the same time recognize that the communities that our clients are seeking to serve have deep knowledge of their own experiences and they undoubtedly, undoubtedly have a deeper understanding than we will ever have of where they fit in the system and how systemic obstacles are preventing them from having opportunities, from pursuing all the life chances they would like to have and would like to be able to be able to pursue. See, I think what actually that gets at, which I think is, at least I'm finding insightful, yeah. is that there are many different types of expertise. And so topic area expertise is one which I feel can be most abused. And so where one looks at who are the academics who are considered African experts, mm. you see a prevalence of certainly not Africans in that space. Right. And yet they will be the ones who sit on the panels and on the conferences, etc. And I think that's where you most want lived experience, you most need yeah. that experience. And there's a question of how does one still assimilate that well from many to few. But then there's an expertise which sits on much more about how does one fit such topic area expertise into processes, into structures, into decision making. And that's a whole different set and a whole set which ID Insight or many others might have. And that's an area which I definitely think has to be centralized or isn't the same set as that one. So I don't know, that to me seems a way to yeah. distinguish between the types of expertise which are valid we would want to keep because they're core actually. Yeah, I mean, I think one kind of related way to think about this is what I understand our board member, Shea Abimbola, who's just brilliant on these topics, um, to what one of the things he talks about is thinking about research and evaluation as serving the actual practitioners, the people who are closest to the communities that are being served, rather than generating knowledge for some external audiences. And once you kind of make that pivot, it becomes very, very clear that the kinds of knowledge that are most useful are highly contextually specific. They require 
require deep understanding and engagement with the communities themselves and understanding of like all of the contextual constraints and facilitating factors, things that are not publishable in top tier journals, but that really, really matter for the results that any development program or any government program can have. I guess I'm trying to think if there's anything useful I can say about the kind of push to localization. Yeah. Because what's going on now is that in a kind of knee-jerk way, a lot of funding agencies, both private and the official funding agencies, feel under pressure to... They're, they're responding to what they perceive as pressure to support particularly African organizations. And so there's real positive to this, right? Because definitely more resources should be directed toward African-led organizations. But there's also, I think, a kind of superficiality to the move in at least some instances where the actions are being taken mostly to avoid the embarrassment of only funding Northern institutions to do work in the Global South rather than very deeply thinking about, well, what are the kinds of organizations that we should be supporting over how long? What kinds of, how far can we as any funder go to really shift not just the resources, but the control over those resources to talented highly capable organizations in the global south and then what are the relationships that are valuable for those organizations to have with international NGOs that might be able to affect change at a different level so I guess I just feel that both the calls for more funding to go to the global south which I think are very very justifiable and should be, there should be a response. I think both the calls and particularly the responses have been somewhat superficial. And I'm hoping that there can be a really in-depth conversation about how to not just have an immediate near-term response, but how to make sure that, that the funding flows and the power shift is maintained and strengthened over time. And I'm curious with that, what are some of the consequences you fear of this superficiality? Yeah, I think I have a couple of concerns. So one is that many of the northern international NGOs have very well-developed capabilities around kind of funder relationships around tracking resources in a particular way and as we were talking about before, reporting in particular ways. And that's been built up over time to be, you know, pretty pronounced capability that many Southern organizations don't have. And I guess one thing I worry about is that a lot of resources are going to be invested in building up those particular capabilities only to serve funders. Whereas the I think the ambition of the resource, and as you said, the power shift is so that in-country 
NGOs can do what they do best, not mimic the things that some international NGOs do best. So I think that's one thing that, that I worry about. And I also worry that there won't be the kind of patience required. The capabilities of international NGOs have been built up over decades and decades. And the partners that they work with have similarly built that up. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And so I just worry that the attention span is not going to be long enough to really yield the, the benefits that people are hoping. And to some extent, I think that there's a fear, I have a fear, that there will be maybe less enthusiasm for putting money into development programs if there's not this kind of cycle of reinforcement in the countries that where the money is coming from. And certainly it's true for, I think, the bilateral development agencies that the strongest advocacy for continuing the flow of development funding comes from the organizations that are currently benefiting from that, comes from, for example, the contractors and international NGOs. They are enthusiastically advocating for the continuation and growth of those budget items by by the donor governments. When they're getting less, a smaller piece of the pie, will they be as effective advocates? So I guess it's a testable hypothesis, but I am worried about the political economy, which isn't a reason not to not to pursue localization. I'm just saying I'm a little worried about the strength of advocacy. That's very interesting. I that. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I think connecting to your second point is, as we see with so many marginal groups or um, disadvantaged groups, the door opens up for one whom hasn't been, because the skills have not been developed, about selecting, identifying, nurturing. And they're expected to perform akin to any other or better. And right. when they fail comes the, oh, well, we told you so. We knew it, it can't be done. We knew there was, this was going to be an issue. And that just perpetuates a stereotype, etc. which I feel like in the same, the same issue rests at the level of hiring. Of, of hiring Africans within these organizations where you can find a similar pattern as well of then the fear is a backlash which then or the reaction they're from and the stereotypes they're from which ultimately hurts a real agenda of actual um, power transition yeah I mean I think to make true localization successful is going to require really a shift in what funders see as the goals and the measurable outcomes of the support that if it's going to be the same success metrics is going to be very hard for many of the organizations to succeed because that's not what they've been built for. INGOs have been built around (laughs) the incentive structure that currently exists. So I do think what what you're raising is a real possibility. Well, with that hopeful note, I, I just want to thank you very much, Ruth, for your time and for your newsletter, which I'll link below, which I think is fantastic and is how I found your work. So, so thank you very much. Well, I appreciate that a lot. It's really been a delight and I will be 
an eager listener to every subsequent episode. So thanks a lot. Well, thanks for listening to my episode with Ruth. I hope from it this pieces you took away, things that you were curious about, and maybe examples that you have of your own. So please make sure to share these, and we'll love to hear from you. I find her thoughtful, frank, and really humble approach inspiring. And so if you do too, I'd highly recommend listening, uh, no, for, for that matter, subscribing to her brilliant newsletter, which I'll link in the description. And as ever, please share this with a friend or a colleague or two to make my day. Well,